about one of the heroes of the New Testament. He was one who really started on that path of the just. We maybe don't know an awful lot about this hero. We don't know his name. And he is only spoken about in one chapter of the New Testament. But he was a person who one day received sight. A couple different kinds of sight. Physical sight, the, imp the importance of physical sight, he received that. But even more importantly, he received another kind of sight. That of spiritual sight. And as you think with me about this hero, I would like if you would also think about two other individuals at the same time. Can we think about three different people? Three different ones as, as we go through the sermon here. The second person that I'd like you to think about is, is yourself. You. In my case, me. And can you see how that in chapter 9, which talks about the, this hero that I was just speaking of, in chapter 9, uh, that there's, can you see yourself also in that story? And maybe we could be asking ourselves, you, yourself, and me, me, um, am I responding like the hero did? So that's the second part. And the third person is certainly the real hero of the story, and that I would like to especially highlight and have us notice and appreciate again together, and that person, of course, is Jesus, the light of the world. That's what he said in verse 5, I am the light of the world. He is the real hero of the story. So the title for this sermon today, The Light of the World is Jesus. This hero, whose name we don't know, and of, this, of which Joseph read part of the story, and maybe you want to just be browsing and looking at the rest of the verses to familiarize yourself again with this account. He grew very quickly in his knowledge of Jesus. Apparently, he didn't know much about Jesus, maybe nothing about Jesus. In verse 11, he said, he called Jesus a man that is called Jesus. A little later on, he called Jesus a prophet. And a little later on, he called Jesus a worshiper of God. And then a little later on in John 9, in that eventful day of his life, he confessed Jesus as the Son of God. So those four, he grew in his knowledge of the light of the world. And let's think about those four in turn. It seems like this chapter naturally can be outlined in those four sections, those four ways. He's a man called Jesus. He's a prophet. He's a worshiper of God. And he is the Son of God. Maybe before we talk about that just too much, we should notice and 
the disciples' question in verse 2, which is still a burning question in some circles today. And us, I know that this is this question I have grappled with, Wanda and I have grappled with in our lives. Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Maybe you have thought about that, and maybe it's been an issue at different times in your life, at times of stress or suffering in your life. The, the disciples asked that, I think assuming that I think assuming that they, their equation it was that suffering equals sin. If this man is suffering, then it must be because of sin. Suffering equals sin. What do you think about that equation? Well, Jesus answered that real clearly in verse 3. Very clearly. And he says that that equation does not equal. It's not an equation. It's a, nope, no, not necessarily. They thought that probably there was only two options, the disciples did, that either this man had sinned while yet in the womb before being born, and I understand that Jewish people in that day were taught that, that it's possible to sin in the womb. Uh, they would use scriptures like Hosea 12.3. So either that or maybe his parents had sinned, or, yeah, that's what the Bible says here. That's what, what their question was. And Jesus says, neither. And we do, it's important for us to realize today that sin does have its own set of consequences. The law of sowing and reaping is in effect as much now at, here in the 21st century as ever. And Yes, certainly so. Um, at, the, at the same time, not wanting to belittle that, I don't think that Jesus was all saying that sin, that suffering equals sin is never the case. You know, if you're going to drink strong drink um, every day, there will be all kinds of consequences all kinds of bad consequences. So Jesus isn't saying that that's never the case. The Bible is very clear that sin, there are consequences to sin. The, the Bible is very clearly that the law of sowing and reaping is in effect in our world today. But that's not the only reason why there is suffering. And as I think of that, I appreciate this quote by Warren Wiersbe. See if you can follow along. He says, in the final analysis, all physical problems are the result of our fall in Adam. But afterward, to blame a specific disability on a specific sin committed by a specific person is certainly beyond any man's ability or authority. End of quote. I also think of, about Aaron Glick. Aaron Glick was a pastor here at Weavertown in the 50s and then at Peckway in, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And he was a pretty 
intelligent, learned man for people in our circles. He did some writing and quite a bit of writing from time to time. And I remember an article that was published in the Calvary Messenger uh, where Aaron speaks about these kind of things. And he says that there are, are three reasons that God brings suffering. There are three reasons that why God allows suffering. And the first one is restorative. And that's kind of what we what the disciples were thinking that sin equals that sin equals suffering. And certainly God does in the Christian's life bring restorative suffering. Um, he might allow suffering in your life or mine to bring us back to our spiritual senses. Maybe we're kind of cold or indifferent or even sinful. God has a way of using suffering to bring us back to him. It's restorative suffering. Can you think of people in the Bible that experienced that? Well, how about David, just for instance, after that debacle with Bathsheba? He committed adultery and murder. And the Lord brought restorative suffering into his life. And David will talk about that in Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 and repents before God. So restorative suffering in David's life did the job and brought David back to restoration with God. There's a verse in Proverbs 29.1. I wonder if I can quote it now. He that being often reproved hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. Much better is it for God's children to experience restorative suffering rather than hardening our neck and bringing us to the place where there is no recourse. I read this. Um, a woman visiting in Switzerland came to a sheepfold on one of her daily walks. Venturing in, she saw the shepherd seated on the ground with his flock around him. Nearby, on a pile of straw, lay a single sheep, which seemed to be suffering. Looking closely, the woman saw that its leg was broken. Her sympathy went out to the suffering sheep, and she looked up inquiringly to the shepherd as she asked how it happened. I broke it myself, said the shepherd sadly, and then explained, of all the sheep in my flock, this was the most wayward. It would not obey my voice and would not follow when I was leading the flock. On more than one occasion, it wandered to the edge of a perilous cliff, and not only was it disobedient itself, but was leading other sheep astray. Based on my experience with this kind of sheep, I knew I had no choice, so I broke its leg. The next day, I took food, and it tried to bite me. After letting it lie alone for a couple of days, I went back, and it not only eagerly took the food, but licked my hand and showed every sign of submission and affection. Now, let me say this. When this sheep is well, it will be the model sheep of my entire flock. No sheep will hear my voice so quickly, nor follow so closely. Instead of leading the others away, it will be an example of devotion and obedience. In short, a complete change will come into the life of this wayward sheep. It will have learned obedience through its sufferings. 
restorative suffering. Thank God that he is willing to restore us when we stray. Well, there's another kind, Aaron Glick said in this article, of suffering, and this is redemptive suffering. Redemptive, a little different than restorative. This is redemptive, and probably you're thinking already and guessing already that this has to do not with restoring after sin or coldness, but this is a preparation, suffering. God will bring suffering into our hearts and lives to prepare us for further service or maybe special service for further fruitfulness. So maybe you're at the place, you love the Lord and you are serving him faithfully, but God, and God sees that if he sends just a little bit of suffering your way, that that's going to enhance your life for him and your experience with the Lord. Isn't that something what, kind of something what Jesus was talking about in John 15 when he said, every branch in, he purgeth it that it may bring more fruit and maybe better fruit and higher quality. Purging, purging. Redemptive. Perhaps when God blesses you with suffering, it's to prepare you for something better, yet in this life. I like the way, again, that Warren Wiersbe has said that as God puts his child through the furnace of suffering, that God always has his eye on the clock when he does that. And he also has, always has his hands on the thermostat. God has not given you any suffering, but that you and the Lord can handle it. And he, God is an expert at knowing just how long to keep you in the furnace and just how hot to make that furnace. Still thinking about redemptive suffering. A preacher at a mission church was speaking of all that Jesus endured at his trial and, and crucifixion. He asked, if you had been there when Jesus became too weak to bear his cross, what would you have done? There was a moment of profound silence. Then a small boy, hardly older than eight, was seen to march down the aisle. His father was a common laborer and his mother was an outcast of society. He marched up to the pulpit, squared his shoulders, and stated bravely, I would have helped him carry it. The minister did not mince words. You would have been beaten until blood ran down your back and dripped on the ground, he exclaimed. The little fellow did not flinch. I don't care, came the firm reply. I would have carried it anyway. The statement seemed safe enough, made nearly 2,000 years after the actual happening. The next Sunday... The minister was greeting each member as they left the church. One of the last to meet him was our little hero of the previous Sunday. He received an affectionate greeting, hello Johnny, and a pat on the back. The child shrank from the touch with a sob. This greatly surprised the minister who led Johnny into a back room and helped him remove his shirt. There was the evidence of Johnny's courage. Livid red welts covered his back from neck to belt line. It was mother, Johnny explained. She whips me every time I go to church. 
Johnny's courage had been more than an idle boast. There are times when God's people must suffering, must suffer. That does not necessarily mean they have sinned. But young people and children sometimes suffer because of the sins of their elders. Suffering does not need to be wasted, though. Redemptive suffering. And then we go on to vicarious suffering. There's restorative suffering, redemptive suffering, and vicarious suffering. And that's when God sends suffering. Not because one has sinned and not because one needs preparation for further and more fruitful service, but for the blessing and benefit of others. Can you think of anyone in the Bible uh, that was blessed with vicarious suffering for the sake of others? Maybe you're thinking of Joseph. Why did Joseph suffer so much? The Bible doesn't indicate at all that was because Joseph had strayed. doesn't indicate at all that it was because Joseph needed um, preparation for further suffering. But it was mostly, I believe, for the sake of his brothers for the sake of his family and his race. A more modern example would be maybe the five missionaries who died in Ecuador back in 1956, Jim Elliott and his four friends. Because of that, through that, um, many people became saved there in the aqua, aqua world, including the murderers, them, and many others. But the Greatest suffer, the greatest example of vicarious suffering, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank God for Jesus and all that he suffered for you and for me. Well, getting back to the hero and myself and the light of the world in John 8... There are, besides the unnamed hero and Jesus, there are three groups of people, persons or groups of people that are mentioned in John 9 that, that we want to look at just a little bit too. And I think that we will find ourselves in one of these, or maybe more than one of these. And ultimately, ultimately, in as we're thinking of ourselves, remember we're hopefully thinking about the hero, we're thinking about ourselves, and we're thinking about the light of the world especially. But as we think about ourselves, ultimately I find, and ultimately you find yourself in John 9 in verse 38 or verse Jesus talks about the works of God in verse 3. But that the works of God should be made manifest in him. The works of God. I wonder what Jesus meant by that. Well, that the works of God should be made manifest in him. So when they're suffering, when the hero suffered, and when you suffer... Do you realize it's because of the works of God? God is wanting to do his work in your life through that. 
And maybe you're thinking back to that little sheep story. Well, often we can hardly see it when we're in the midst of suffering, but it is, it is true, it is right, it is correct. It is so true that God is too loving to be unkind. And God is too wise to make mistakes. And God is too powerful for any accidents to happen in your life. God is doing his work in you when he blesses you with suffering. God is too loving to be unkind. God is too wise to make any mistakes that he sends you into your life. God is too powerful for any accidents to happen. We can hardly blame Job very much, right? We can hardly blame his wife very much, right? We can hardly blame any of his four friends very much, right? We can blame Satan. But in the book of Job, much, most of that book is, has to do with their conversation and they're fussing and they're debating about the terrible situation that Job just found himself in. And his wife was wrong in her estimation of the case. And each of the four friends were wrong in their estimation of the case. And certainly Satan was wrong. Chapter 1 and 2. There was someone else that was wrong, and that was Job himself. And God made that real plain in the, at the end of Job, and Job was very willing to repent and understand that God is right and he was wrong. Basically, would it be right to say that at the end, Job said that God is too loving to be unkind. God is too wise to make mistakes. God is too powerful for any accidents to happen. They, those wrong ones, argued with, from incomplete data. But God made me and God made you right. And God placed me and God placed you in just the right time in history. And God put you and he put me through exactly the right circumstances and trials, exactly right. We're thinking now of the first number of verses, and notice in verse 8 and following, especially 8 through 12, about the neighbors. They ask three questions, one in verse 8, one in verse 10, and one in verse 12. And it becomes obvious that the hero, the unnamed hero, didn't know very much. He knew quite little, but he knew enough about this man called Jesus to trust and obey him. Isn't that something? He knew much, much less about Jesus than I do. And he knew much, much less about Jesus than you do. 
but he was willing to trust and obey. He's a model. And no wonder we call him a hero. Trust, because he was one who trusted and obeyed, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. He called Jesus Savior. A man called Jesus. A man called Savior. A man who saved him from blindness. And these neighbors, in the meantime, all they could do is ask uh, funny little questions. And it becomes a little bit obvious to me, I wonder if it does to you, that they were a little bit indifferent about things and not awfully discerning. And... Their response kind of is a little bit on the indifferent uh, side. They, they represent, I think, those among uh, that are here in the 21st century that are just that way. Too busy, too preoccupied maybe with their own problems. And I need to ask the question of myself, and maybe you do for yourself. Do I fit in with that group? Am I that kind of, that group that sees, looks at it, a wonderful thing from afar, and I'm not tremendously impressed by it, or enter into the joy for the man, but actually hinder God's working? Well, going on to verses 13 through 23, and this is the section where our hero has advanced from just calling him a man called Jesus. That's all he knew, basically. He now realizes that Jesus is a prophet. Verse 17. He's a prophet. Alfred Edersheim says that Jesus doing what he did, I'm th especially looking at verse 14, Jesus doing what he did when he did it, made for a manifold breach, Mr. Edersheim says, in the Jewish world or customs. Yeah. He made clay and on the Sabbath day. That was offense number one. And then he... Then that remedy, spit and dirt mixed together, then that remedy was applied externally, and that also was against the Jewish law. They had all kinds of ideas and rules and that kind of thing. And so this was a manifold breach. But in the midst of that, in the midst of the Jewish world's looking at this, our hero, in simple, honest truth, says that he's a prophet. I like his perception. And especially, I appreciate his knowledge of Jesus and his understanding in contrast to his parents who are spoken about in verses 18 through 23. His parents must have been quite poor for, to allow their son to beg. And 
his parents were rather were very careful because they didn't want to be excommunicated. Verse 22, he should be put out of the synagogue, excommunicated from the Jewish way of life. Uh, that was too much for them, and so they were willing to backpedal. Isn't that something? That on one of the happiest days of their life, here was their son that had been born blind, and a man called Jesus comes along, who is a prophet. His son, their son knows that and heals their son in a glorious way. Very different, unique, glorious way. Must have, should have certainly been one of the happiest days of their life. And instead, they come across, don't they, as being very fearful and unbelieving. So here are the neighbors, pretty much unconcerned. Here are the mom and dad, just scared for their own well-being, in spite of the wonderful thing that had happened to their son. In that backdrop, he, the hero, says he's a prophet. He's learning. He's teachable. He's acting on the light that he has, and God has given him more light. He's a prophet. Well, then later on, our unnamed hero calls him a worshiper of God. That's in verse 31. I kind of think that verses 24 to 34 are kind of a section there. He knew so little about the light of the world, but he gave a very glowing testimony nevertheless. He is a worshiper of God. And here are the, of course, the Pharisees are in view and are holding him to the fire. And this man obviously probably never had much being blind from birth, probably never had much synagogue teaching or much learning. He was theologically illiterate. He knew so little. He had so little opportunity so far in his life to learn spiritual truth. I think that if you are sitting here today, I think that you sitting here know many, many, many more times more about theology, about God, about life in general than that man ever did up to this day. And what did he do? He gave his testimony in the midst of that opposition now from people that, who should know better, the Pharisees. <coughs> Excuse me. Do you see his testimony in verse 25? Wonderful little testimony. He answered and said, Whether he be a sinner or no, I know not, one thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. Now, maybe you think that you aren't very good at witnessing. Maybe you think, like I sometimes do, that it gets it's a little bit too complicated for me. You know, I think right now that if 
This man can witness effectively by saying that I couldn't see, but now I can. I think that that takes care of any excuse that you or that I would have about witnessing to others about the light of the world. All of that, you know, the Pharisees had silenced the community, pretty much, and the parents. They had intimidated the parents especially, but this man was not intimidated. He wasn't impressed with their learning and with their imposing presence, probably not. And he was, I think, more impatient than intimidated. He was more impatient to see the world, both physically and spiritually. He hardly had time for them. Um, verse 27, he answered them, I have told you already and you did not hear. Do you see his impatience and his courage sticking out all over there? Wherefore would ye hear it again? Will ye also be his disciples? So much to see, physically and spiritually. And in that context, then they reviled him, verse 28. Someone has said, to revile is the answer of those who have been defeated in debate. These Pharisees, the learned men of the day, had been bested, I think, by this ignorant, lowly beggar, who just very effectively gave, was able to give his testimony of being able to see, I think, two kinds of seeing, don't you? So the community, the neighbors didn't care that much. And the parents were too scared to be much, to be hardly any support to this man. And now the Pharisees come and are actively against this man. Do you see that how that everyone's turning against him? The neighbors aren't going to, the parents aren't going to, and then here comes the Pharisees to actively oppose him. It's in that setting, they're reviling him, the, the Pharisees are. It's in that setting, in that context, that he says these things. Look at verse 30. Look at verse 31. Look at verse 32. Look at verse 33. I'm hoping that you're seeing just a little bit why I'm calling him a hero. I'm hoping that you're seeing at least a little bit how that he is progressing so quickly in the faith. First, he was just a man called Jesus. Then he was a prophet. Then he's a worshiper of God. And this brings him to being this Vision that he had gained that day. Visions physically, he could see first time in his life. Vision spiritually, he could see first time in his life. And that brought him to uh, a state of aloneness. They cast him out. Verse 34. And all of a sudden, this man who has 
been part of the Jewish community, the Jewish world <clears throat> has no more comfort from anybody Jewish and no compassion either. The community has turned against him because he's been cast out of the synagogue. He's been excommunicated. So that means he won't be able to get a job. He really has no family. He cannot go to church and he can expect no help from anybody in the Jewish in his community. <clears throat> and before we go on to the fourth point, the Son of God, let me just mention, uh, mention again about the Pharisees. So the, the neighbors. Wonder if I'm a neighbor. I should be asking myself, am I a neighbor or am I a parent or am I a Pharisee? Now, I think there's very few Pharisees here today that really actively oppose the work of Christ. But then again, I think that you and I think that I need to, just before the Lord, ask again, Lord, is there a Pharisee traits in my life that you are wanting to point out and uh, that I have not been hearing or listening from you? I should do the same. I need to, as a follower of Christ, keep asking, Lord, is there something about his parents? Am I like his parents, too fearful to do the work of God? Or am I like the neighbors, too unconcerned to do the work of God? I think God is calling that us, calling you and calling me, certainly, to that once again today. You know, at communion time, we often talk about examining ourselves. Well, this is just a couple weeks after communion, but I think that God is calling me again, once again, maybe you too, to examine ourselves, myself, yourself, to see if I am like the neighbors, or like the parents, or like the Pharisees. Well, Jesus, the light of the world, who has given this hero light of two kinds, gives him more light and shows him and comes to him. Isn't that one of the best things about the whole story? Verse 35 and following. He had already given him light physically and spiritually, and now when he is all alone, through no fault of his own, and is experiencing suffering, maybe redemptive suffering. Jesus comes to him at just the right time, and the result of that is that our hero acknowledges him as the Son of God, the light of the world seeks those who have been given up by everyone else. He was, went from no one, yes, they cast him out, and when they cast him out, basically he was cast right into the arms of Jesus, where there, and there is no safer place to be. Here was a man who was suffering because of his stand for Christ, 
And Jesus took up his case. <clears throat> There's no safer place to be. His excuse was, he was asked, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? Verse 35. And he said, um, well, I don't, his excuse was, I, I, I don't know who it is. Who is he, Lord, that I might believe in him? Jesus said, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. And he said, just like that. Isn't that something? And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him as the Son of God. Lord, I believe. And hopefully we are, you and me here today, come to that statement yet again. Lord, I believe. That was for us when we became a Christian. That's for us daily in our walk with the Lord. I believe that God would be honored to hear us say from time to time, Lord, I believe, and worship him. So we've talked about the hero, and we've, I've tried to keep reminding you about thinking about yourself as well, even as I do myself. I would like to say that especially I would want to highlight and make much of the light of the world. Remember the title? The light of the world is Jesus. This Jesus gave our hero hope and light, two kinds of light, right? The light of the world is Jesus. He is the answer to your life situations and your life's questions, yours and mine. Jesus, the light of the world. Here in the last sentence or two, I just remind you once again, it's Jesus. It's not the hero that is the ultimate lesson for us from John 9. It's not, certainly not ourselves that gets the attention in John 9, but it's Jesus, the light of the world. John 9 and all the Bible through. Thank God for Jesus. And will you kneel with me for prayer? Our Father in heaven, I especially thank you today for Jesus. The light of the world is Jesus. The whole world was lost in the darkness of sin. The light of the world is Jesus. Thank you that his light is shining as bright or brighter today than ever it did. Thank you that Jesus, our Redeemer, our Savior, our Lord, Heavenly Father, is alive and alive forevermore and is coming for us one of these days, and we pray even so, come Lord Jesus. I thank you <clears throat> for the hero in John 9, and how that he was able to learn of God, learn of Jesus so quickly. After he had received his spiritual sight, he also received, after he had received his physical sight by the light of the world, he was also able to gain spiritual sight through the light of the world. Thank you that Jesus meets us where we are. Thank you that although all men might leave and let us in the lurch, neighbors, 
and parents and Pharisees, but that the light of the world always brings light for us and meets us where we are and is faithful in drawing us to himself. And I pray, Lord, that as we see the light of Jesus in our life, as we see the light of Jesus, that we would always be drawn to the light like the hero was, always gaining more and more until that day when you call us home. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.